0: my righteousness, oh God, how I need you. Couldn't help with thinking. Hey, I'm going to start with a story and some of y'all are familiar with this story, some of you aren't. I've got a nice little ending to it that I had never heard before today. A group of blind men heard that a strange animal called an elephant had been brought to the town, but none of them were aware of its shape and form. Out of curiosity, they said, We must inspect and know it by touch, of which we, as blind men, are capable. So they sought it out, and when they found it, they groped about it. The first person whose hand landed on the trunk said, This being is like a thick snake. For another one whose hand reached its ear, it seemed like a kind of fan. As for another person whose hand was upon its leg said, the elephant is a pillar like a tree trunk. The blind man who placed his hand upon its side said the elephant is a wall. Another who felt its tail described it as a rope. The last felt its tusk, stating the elephant is that which is hard, smooth, and like a spear. Now which of them were wrong? Addendum. Six blind elephants were discussing what men were like. After arguing, they decided to find one and determine what it was like by direct experience. The first blind elephant felt the man and declared, Men are flat. After the other blind elephants felt the man, they all agreed. So. <laughs> I can't help it, okay? <laughs> How can you not share that when you find it, right? I didn't make that up. I I've I read that on the internet, y'all. So the so point of the story is this, okay? And it sets the stage for what we're going to look at this morning. We are, all of us, so prone to interpret truth based on how we see it, based on our experiences, based on our knowledge and in our therapeutic culture... How we feel about it. Is that wrong? I wouldn't say it's wrong. I'd say it's not enough. We can't help it really. Our subjective experiences affect how we see, how we receive, and how we execute objective truth. So subjective is what's true to me. Objective is what's true whether you know it, believe it, or not. If you subjectively feel like you can defy gravity and jump off the roof, gravity wins every time. That's an objective truth. It's a law. Well, today we're going to see subjective and objective truth through three guys' eyes. We're going to look through the eyes of Judas, Peter, and Jesus. And I'll let you figure out who's subjective and who's objective. As we read this passage, if you would please stand, we've got a long passage today, but I think you can make it. I feel, I feel very confident in your ability to stand through the reading of God's word. The Israelites stood for a quarter of the day one time, we're going to stand for just a minute or two. So this is Matthew 26, verses 31 to 56, and we do believe wholeheartedly, objectively, that these are the very words of God. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, "'Friend, do what you came to do.' Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, "'Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels?' But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled?" That it must be so. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all of this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy, powerful, precious, strong word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who dwells with us that we might understand and then go out and live this word out. God, help us to be conformed to the image of your son, the objective truth of your word and through the omnipotent power of your very spirit. we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. (laughs) Some of you guys that have been around for a while, I'm sure are thinking, how in the world are you going to get through all this? This is a big chunk, right? Um, and I want to let you know why. I mean, this, this very well could have been three or four messages. Uh, I think it's important for you to know why. Um, the Lord didn't tell me to do it this way, okay? I didn't have a vision or a dream um, or an unction, okay? There's a couple of reasons, actually. First, as we work through the account of Jesus' crucifixion, What literary form are we looking at? You've got to ask yourself that, and we've talked about that before as we've worked through the Scripture. This is a narrative. okay? Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is documenting how things happened as this process moved forward. He's telling the story, which we've got to be careful with that word because stories can be made up in our mind. That's not what Matthew's doing. He's recounting, he's giving an account of the historical facts that make up this part of Jesus' life and death. And so this section today starts with a thought and then ends with the conclusion of that thought. And so it makes it one good unit. So that's one reason why we're taking it all uh, today as we are taking it. Uh, And the other reason is that a lot like last week, uh, we're going to see, like I said, three major personalities and how they play out over the course of this section of the story as we look again at Judas, Peter, and Jesus. And we'll see some interesting progressions in these three guys and how it affects us and how it challenges us and what we're called to. So I just wanted to set that up as we start today and and let you know that while we're focused on verse-by-verse exegesis, which we are, line-by-line, word-by-word, sometimes that means looking at a bigger picture Not just a little picture, because we spend a lot of time on words and phrases and conjunctions and prepositional phrases. None of that today, really. This is narrative, and we're we're looking at the big picture. More forest than trees today. So, we're going to take it section by section. And the first section is 31 to 35. Let me read that again. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written... I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. So... um. Jesus and his 11 disciples now, um, minus Judas, remember he had left the upper room where they had partaken of the Passover meal last week, we looked at. Him and his 11 men have left that upper room and um, verse 30, which ended our passage last week, said that they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now remember, that's where all of chapters 24 and 25 had happened with Jesus giving what is called the Olivet Discourse in chapters 24 and 25. In response to the disciples' question about the ins and outs of Jesus' prediction of the destruction of the temple building, so this was a familiar place to him. I did find a beautiful picture of it. That's the Mount of Olives. That's looking out from the city of Jerusalem. So that's where they're headed. Okay, it's late. It's evening. It's dark. The city is a buzz with the festival, and people are celebrating. They would even open the gates of the city at midnight and let people in and out to rejoice. During this time, and these guys are headed out of the city onto the mount of olives and and they were familiar with this place they'd spent they spent quite a bit of time there, uh, like we talked about chapters twenty four and twenty five and other times before. It is directly across from the city of Jerusalem, and there were groves of olive trees, uh, no room for gardens in the city. all the gardening was done outside the city across valleys and on the hills. And here there were groves of olive trees uh, planted. And so they named the hillside the Mount of Olives. So here on the Mount of Olives, Jesus looks at his 11 guys and he says this just after Judas had left to betray Jesus and they had finished their Passover meal without Judas. Jesus looks at the rest of them, the other 11. He says, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So Jesus has already had one disciple, Judas, completely turn on him and literally betray him. Sold him out for 20 pieces of silver, right? And now here he says that the other 11 will fall away because of him that very night. That phrase fall away means to offend or to cause a person to begin to distrust and desert one whom he ought to trust and obey. So that's pretty accurate there, right? They're all, all 11 of them, are going to desert Jesus. I've, I'm missing part of my scriptures. i actually am missing part of my whole message. So let me reopen a different file. This has happened before. I'm not caught flat-footed, just looking a little silly. So, export. We're going to open it here. Sorry about that. Technical glitches, right? Okay, so he looks at them and he says, all 11 of you, you're all going to fall away. You're all going to run. You're all going to begin to distrust me and desert me. And then look at why Jesus says they will desert him. Um, For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Now don't miss that. They will fall away because... The scriptures predicted it. He didn't say they'd be offended or desert him because of fear or dread of being killed themselves, although that's surely true. But it's true because God had foretold that it would happen. And Jesus quotes Zechariah 13:7. As the prophecy, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. God predicted back in Zechariah, which would have been, oh, 400 ish years before uh, the New Testament was ever happening, so 400 BC or so, so 450 years before Jesus is saying this. Zechariah said this, And God had said through Zechariah, predicting that he would strike the shepherd. Now get that. God would strike the shepherd, whom he calls the man who stands next to me. And when that shepherd, that man, who is Jesus, is stricken, then his sheep would be scattered. And Jesus shows that Zechariah was foretelling of this night, when the Spirit moved in and through him to record these words. But, Jesus says after quoting the prophet, after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now that's really good news. Especially following that dire prediction of their falling away. They will fall away. He will be stricken. They will be scattered. But, Jesus will be raised up and then go ahead of them into Galilee. But as has so often been the case... The disciples missed that whole last part. Indicated by whom, chiefly, you think? It's Peter. Good old Peter. Peter doesn't process anything Jesus said after the fall away statement. His mind shut down. Plunk. Fall away. He has a counterpoint to that statement and he's just waiting for Jesus to stop talking so he can put Jesus in his place. Out of love, of course. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Not me, Peter says. You're wrong, Peter says. Zechariah, Schmechariah, Peter says. I mean, b- because Jesus is probably just misrepresenting that scripture. He misinterpreted it. That's not what it means, Jesus. I don't like that interpretation, Jesus. All of that to say, not me. The rest of these guys probably will, Peter says. But I will never fall away. Now, I don't want to be too hard on Peter. He's sincere, but he's sincerely wrong. On this side of the narrative where we are, we know what Peter will do, right? And Jesus knew what Peter would do. But faced with that knowledge before it happens... Faced with the very words of God in the flesh, Peter shrugs it off and vociferously refused to let that negative word light on him. Don't speak those negative words, Jesus. He again rebukes Jesus, just like he did back in Matthew 16, when Jesus said that first time that he was going to be killed. That's when Jesus called Peter Satan, you might remember. Peter said, may it never be like that. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, because you're not serving my interest, you're serving man's. Peter just has to defend himself. And he just has to prove to Jesus and everybody else and himself that he loves Jesus more than anybody else. That his style of worship was best. Peter's got a lot of confidence in himself. And that'll change. And we'll see that in more detail in the next week or two as we look into his denial, which we won't get into today. But back in our passage today, Jesus doesn't just reiterate what He said about the eleven forsaking Him, but rather He zeroes in on Peter in verse 34. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows, you... Will deny me three times. Now, again, Jesus is making this clear. He's not guessing. I bet you're just going to fall away, Peter. I bet you're going to deny me three times. That's not what Jesus is doing. Truly, amen, Jesus says. I tell you, Peter, and that's a big I there, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Now, can you imagine what Peter thought and felt there? Well, we don't have to wonder because verse 35, Peter says, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. He's arguing with Jesus. Peter says again, No way! I will not deny you three times. I will die with you. I will not deny you. Jesus, you are wrong." And again, I love Peter's passion, but I don't like the fact that he's calling Jesus a liar. At what point do you figure out that Jesus is literally never wrong? Now be careful. He's literally never wrong, regardless of what you think or feel. Peter, Jason, Well, it's obviously going to take Peter longer than three and a half years or so because Peter here refuses to listen or to hear what Jesus is saying. But he isn't the only one. At the end of the verse, it says, and all the disciples said the same. We just single Peter out because he singles himself out so often. But the rest of them say the same thing. I'll die with you. I'm not going to run. I'm going to die with you if if that's what we need to do. Mm Mm-hmm. So the other 10 said the same thing. All 11 of them refuse to operate from a place of vulnerability or weakness or from a place where they need to receive grace. They say, not us. We'll never fall away. We will die for Riley. I mean, for Jesus. It's a movie quote. Well, we'll see, right? I really feel like this part of this passage is pretty much holy ground. I mean, yes, all of the Word of God is holy, but I do not feel adequate to comment on this. I mean, Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, languishing in prayer, seeking the will of God the night before He's crucified. I don't, I, I don't have a shelf to put this on. It's just overwhelming, but God has it in His Word, so we'll engage it. So, Jesus and the eleven go to a place called Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane literally means an oil press. And the way that olives were de oiled, I don't know, milked, I don't know what you do with olives, but I I don't know. The way olives were de-oiled was that they'd use a grinding mill type of deal. They'd have this basin and they'd put a big rock and they'd have an animal move that rock around and it would squeeze out the, the juice, the oil, I guess oil, and it would run out and they'd collect it that way. But that, they weren't done. Okay, They would take the husks then and they'd put them in a big pile and they'd get this huge rock. Sorry to spit there. This huge rock, and they'd set that rock on top of those olive husks, and gravity then would do its work, and it would pull that rock down over time. And as it came down, more oil would come out, and they'd have a trench that it would run out, and then they'd collect it that way. Okay? Um, if if you're familiar with Ray Vanderlaan at all, he has got a great teaching on Garden of Gethsemane and how all that operates uh, His faith lessons from the Holy Land series that focus on the family put out. If you can find that, it's very good. But here are Jesus and his 11 men in this garden where olives are collected, crushed, and the oil is harvested. And he tells the disciples to sit down, he's going to pray. And further, he takes Peter, James, and John, that inner sanctum, that that secret three that were with them in times when other people weren't, and he takes them a little further in with him. And Jesus literally looks at these three guys and the text says that he's sorrowful and troubled. So he says to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here. And watch with me. Now imagine that. Imagine Jesus looking you in the eye and saying, I'm very sorrowful. My soul is at the point of death. Guys, please pray with me. The weight of the world is on his shoulders. And we don't get the details here that we get in other gospels that says he went and he prayed to the point that he sweated great drops of blood, literally stressed and pushed to the point of exhaustion, and his capillaries burst. And so his sweat comes out as literal blood because of the anguish that he's in. And like that rock on those olives, Jesus is just being pressed and pressed and pressed. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. He says to his three closest friends. And then he goes off a little bit and falls on his face and prays, My father, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will. But as you will. That's just, that's too much. I can't fathom that. God the Son in the flesh, struggling with the will of God. He has said time and again that the cross was his mission. So I think it's important to note, I don't think that he's struggling with the cross. I don't think he's struggling with pain and suffering and crucifixion. We've mentioned before in our trek through Matthew that the cup usually referred to the wrath of God, right? And that is what Jesus is struggling with. Let this cup, if there's another way, let this cup of judgment, this cup of wrath that you're about to pour out, That's what Jesus is struggling with. He's about to receive the wrath of God. The God and Father whom He has known perfect unity with since eternity past. Whom perfect love exists from eternity past into eternity future. He's about to receive the wrath of God upon Himself for sins that He did not commit. My sins. Your sins. And he said, God, if, if, if there's another way, is there any way that maybe I don't have to drink this cup of your wrath? But he doesn't stop there. Yet not my will, but yours be done. I can't imagine. He is about to receive the wrath of God for the sins of God's people. And that is going to be more than we could ever imagine. And Jesus knows it's coming and asks if there's another way, but says he wants God's will more than he wants to avoid this coming wrath. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. More on this later. And so then he comes and he finds Peter and these go-hung, go-hung, gung-ho guys (laughs) Asleep! We'll never abandon you. We'll never forsake you. We'll die with you. (laughs) And he looks at Peter, who had been so bold just a little earlier, saying he would die with Jesus, and he says, So? I can imagine Peter's eyes popping open at the so. Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, Peter, that you may not enter into into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. What's the matter, Pete? you sleepy? Can't stay awake, Peter? Going to die with me? But can't stay awake. Watch and pray, Peter. Temptation is coming. Your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. Then he goes off and prays, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And then he comes back and finds this guy sleeping again. Goes back one more time saying the same words again. Then comes back to find the guy still asleep. And he wakes him up. And he tells him, sleep's going to have to be later, guys. Sleep and take your rest later on. See the hours at hand. And the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See? My betrayer is at hand. He knows it's time. And here comes Judas. But he ain't alone. 47 to 50. While he was still speaking, as these words were coming out of his mouth, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. It just sounds serpentine, doesn't it? And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. So here comes Judas. We've looked at Peter, we've looked at Jesus, and we'll look back at Jesus and Peter in a minute. But here comes Judas. Judas with a great crowd. I don't know how many people that is. It must be a bunch. You wouldn't look at five or six guys and say, that's a great crowd of people there. It's a bunch of people. I don't know how many. And these are folks who were sent from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now, the last time we saw the chief priests and elders of the people, they were planning on how to kill Jesus, but not during the feast, they said. Well, guess what? They don't get to make that choice. So much for that. This crowd of folks is following Judas, and they're carrying swords and clubs. And Judas had told them to seize the man that he kissed. It was common to greet people, especially friends with a kiss when you saw him. So Judas walks up to Jesus, kisses him, and says, Greetings, Rabbi. And how does Jesus react? (laughs) Jesus says to Judas, who just identified Jesus as the one needing to be seized by kissing him, Friend... Do what you came to do. Unflinching, undisturbed, Jesus has done his work with God alone and now, listen, nothing can touch him. He knew Judas was going to betray him. He had actually told Judas he would after Judas had already made arrangements to do that before Judas goes off to actually do it. So when Judas shows up to do what he's doing and even by doing it the way that he did it, Jesus says, friend, do what you came to do. Now, there are people who put some stock in Jesus calling Judas' friend here. Like Judas wasn't lost and doomed for hell. But Judas was not, uh, not Jesus' friend. Jesus was acknowledging that Judas had kissed him like a friend. And that word friend here is the same word if you go back to Matthew 20 and you had the, the, the parable where the field owner pays everybody a denarius for a day's wage, or a talent, sorry, denarius for a day's wage. And the guy at the end gets one denarius, and he thought he was going to get more because the guys that came and only worked one hour got one denarius. Remember that that story? At the end, the, uh, the owner tells the guy who's upset because he only got one denarius, he says, friend, I've not done you any wrong. That's the same word here. And then the same word in Matthew 22 when Jesus tells the parable of the guy not wearing the wedding garment at the wedding. The guy given the feast comes in and he says, Friend, why don't you have a wedding garment on? And what's he do? He casts him into hell. Jesus is not affirming Judas as his friend. Judas was the son of perdition. And like we saw last week, it would have been better if he had not been born. So this friend word doesn't help Judas or lift him up at all. And Jesus is, of course, like we said last week, and we'll say again here, Jesus is in full control here. He is submitted to the perfect will of God. So he looks Judas in the eye. He had looked at him, I don't know how how much earlier, and he said, What you do, do quickly. Now he looks at him and says, Friend, do what you came to do. Jesus is better than us. We, we would be hurt, right? Judas, I can't believe you did this to me. Hurt my feelings, Judas. You were my friend. I let you hold the money back. Jesus looks at him and says, do it quickly, my friend. Do what you came to do. But We're not quite done yet. Jesus isn't struggling or resisting God's will, but what about the disciples? 51 to 56. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Hmm. Well, it turns out that at least one of Jesus' disciples isn't taking this ambush very well. Any guess who that might be? John 18:10 then Simon Peter having a sword drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear the servant's name was Malchus by the way trivia of course it was Peter right <laughs> Peter who guaranteed that he would die with Jesus flexes some more of those I'll show you muscles and takes a sword and lops off a guy's ear now I would guess he wasn't aiming for his ear just a guess I'm gonna get that guy's ears. Look at that. Ginsu knife stuff. It slices, it dices. Just look at that ear. No. Not many people cutting off ears with swords, right? I'd say old Peter was looking to kill this fella and just missed and got an ear. I'll show you. But I, he caught me asleep. I, I ain't going to sleep. I'm gonna kill this guy. And Jesus must have been impressed by Peter's passion and power, right? I was wrong, Peter. You know what? You, look at you. Check you out, man. Fantastic. No. 52 and 53, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? So yeah, Jesus is not so impressed with Peter's display of sentiment. You might say, put the sword up, Peter. You want to fight? If you want to fight, it's going to bring a fight to you. Live by the sword, die by the sword. And then Jesus reminds Peter, who is in charge here? I could call on my father. And he'd send 12 legions of angels to help me, if that was his will. But Peter, do you see any angels? You see, an angel? much less 12 legions? So that must not be God's will, Peter. What you're seeing around you, swords and clubs and a crowd and a betrayer, this is God's will. That don't feel very good. That don't make much sense. But how then, Jesus says, should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Again, Jesus' appeal is to the plan revealed in the Scriptures to be fulfilled. That's what's important. Not my subjective experience in the moment, but the eternal truth. And the plan revealed in the scriptures is not God-man protected by his disciple and saved from death. No, it's Messiah betrayed by one of his own and killed at the hands of sinful men. It must be this way, Jesus says. And then in verse 55, Jesus shows his control to the mob who came after him, saying, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. Jesus points out that he's been easy pickings for a while now. Especially during this week of Passover, having been out in the open, teaching in the temple, helpless, defenseless. Why not then? Why didn't you come get me then? Why now? Why like this? Am I a robber? You need swords and clubs? No, Jesus says. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. All through this passage, Jesus comes back to this. You don't need swords and clubs. You're not going to apprehend me that way. I'm, I'm, I'm here. But it has to be this way. It had to happen this way. The scriptures say so. The prophets predicted it. And it will be fulfilled. Period. And the disciples, obviously emboldened by the word of God, run away. All of them! You would think that they would have been inspired and empowered by Jesus' courage and faithfulness, right? Then all the disciples left him and fled. They both. Just like he said they would. Just like the scriptures had predicted that they would. They couldn't handle it. They were scared and self-preserving. So they flee into the night, leaving Jesus to the mob and the swords and the clubs. Leaving Jesus to be handed over to the chief priests and elders who will hand him over to the Romans to be hung on a cross and brutally murdered. Where he will absorb the wrath of God for the sins of his people just as the scriptures foretold. What a story. What truth. We're going to look at application a little bit different this morning. This whole passage has been a little bit different. We got two words alliterated. RF is the common alliteration. We're going to look at the reactions of Three people, Judas, Peter, and Jesus. Judas being an example of rebellious flesh, RF. Peter being an example of religious flesh. And Jesus being the perfect example of redemptive flesh. Rebellious flesh, religious flesh, redemptive flesh. Judas, Peter, and Jesus. And I want to ask you this morning, where are you here? First example we want to look at is Judas, who is our example of rebellious flesh. Judas says, I want my will. Judas says, I'll do what I want. Judas says, I am Lord. Judas says, I'll kill Jesus. Judas causes suffering. Judas initiates persecution. Judas ignores the scriptures, even though he's fulfilling them and doesn't even know it. Peter is religious flesh, and we'll come back to these. Peter says in his religious flesh, I want your will to be like my will, God. Peter says, God, I'm going to do what I want, what I think is best. Peter says, No, Lord. Peter can't fathom suffering. Peter flees persecution. Peter twists the scriptures takes the very words of Christ and says, no, 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 let me explain them to you better. And then Jesus represents redemptive flesh. Jesus says, I want my will to be your will, God. I want to do what you want, Lord. Jesus says, yes, Lord. Jesus says, I'll sacrifice myself. Jesus suffers persecution and Jesus places his hope in the scriptures. Now let's contrast those, okay? Judah says, I want my will. Peter says, I want your will to be my will. And Jesus says, I want your will. I want my will to be your will. God, you see the difference? Judah says, I'm Lord, I'm the boss, I'm in charge here. Peter says, no, Lord, which is really impossible to say. Jesus says, yes, Lord. Judas says, I'll kill Jesus. Peter says, you can't die, Jesus. Jesus says, I'll die. Judas causes suffering and initiates persecution. Peter can't fathom suffering and flees persecution. Jesus offers himself to suffer persecution. Judas ignores the scriptures. Peter twists the scriptures. And Jesus places his hope in the scriptures. Where are you? I'm probably all three. At different times, different places, different parts of the day. Let me tell you what, this morning, if you're lost and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you are Judas. You will do what you want to do. You have declared yourself as Lord. And like we said last week, your only option is to kill Jesus. That's all all you can do. Because Jesus' claim is to lordship and kingship and sovereignty, and you ain't having that. Not for your life. You call suffering. You initiate persecution. Because you've raised yourself up as an enemy of God. Which is what we all are in our natural state. Every single one of us. We are at war with the Almighty. And in your unsaved, unregenerate state, you ignore the scriptures. They mean nothing to you. That is the wrong passage. Something Corinthians 10.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That's Judas. That's you if you're not born again. And check this out, Romans 8, 5-8. All that unregenerate people can do is sin. That's all they can do. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But they build hospitals and they help people and they feed people and they're so nice. And they cannot please God. And that which is not done from faith, the scripture says, is sin. Judas could not please God. And it festered and boiled and bubbled in him until he killed himself. And we're all self destructive apart from the grace of God. But I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to find myself, be myself, express myself. I am Lord. I don't need this Jesus guy. We'll just kill him off. We'll kill the thought of him off. We'll redefine everything that's been said about him. We'll twist the scriptures. No, no, no we'll just ignore the scriptures. And that's where you are today if you don't know Christ as your Savior. Now, that's Judas. That's rebellious flesh. Peter, 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 Peter represents religious flesh and this one's really tricky y'all Peter knew Jesus Peter confessed him as Lord right and here when the rubber meets the road when it's time to a call to action when Jesus speaks words Peter says no 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 I will not receive that word, Jesus. Who do you think you are to proclaim over me that I'm going to obey? I will die with you. Look at me. Look how good I am. Watch. You just watch how good I'll do. I'll try harder and I'll do better. I know I've messed up in the past. I ain't going to do that anymore. Look how. Watch how I perform. Watch how good I am. I'm going to show God how much I love Him. I'm going to prove to Him how much I love Him. I'm going to prove to Him that I'm better than I used to be. But for that to happen, you've got to twist God's will and make it your own will. You've got to try to crush God into your form. You've got to push Him into your place and you've got to make Him look like you. And you've got to make His will What you want, what you prefer. You've literally got to say, no, Lord. What happened to, is it I, Lord, from last week? Well, it's a quick turn, isn't it? One of you will betray me. Is it me? Is it me? I said, I thought that was kind of a win for these guys. Now, today, tonight, not me. Uh Uh-uh. You're wrong, Jesus. I'll save Jesus. I'll fix the will of God so it makes a little bit more sense. I'll fix the will of God so that it lines up with what I think it really should be. Suffering? No, 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 no. No, health, wealth, prosperity, peace, joy, everything good. That's what the will of God is. And so you twist the scriptures. And it's in an effort to please God. It's in an effort to live the Christian life and to make sense of it. Because sometimes it just doesn't make sense. Why are these things happening? Must not be God's will. Swords and clubs? A betrayer? All of us follow? No, 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 no. God would never do that to you. I know God better than that. How well do you know the Word of God? Let's go back and look at Peter and Matthew 16. Peter had said, may it never happen to you, Jesus. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Why? For you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. But Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. How many times have you looked at the word of God and said, No, no. Peter knew Jesus, confessed him as Lord, and Jesus called him Satan because he wasn't serving God's purposes but man's purposes. And we do the same thing as followers of Jesus. Those of us who know him, those of us who call him Lord, be very careful with your religious flesh. In this passage today, Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not, I will not, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Religious flesh will not be crushed. Religious flesh will not be conformed to the image of the Son because religious flesh wants to exalt itself and talk about how good we are. When we're all sinners saved by grace, we all fall away. We all sell them out for a bowl of soup. And He knows this. He knows our frame that we are dust, He knows that we need grace. And so we see Jesus as redemptive flesh. Not my will, but your will be done, he says to God. I want to do what you want me to do, Lord. He says, yes, Lord. He says, I'll sacrifice myself. He suffers persecution and he places his hope fully in who God is and what God has said. And if you notice all through this passage today, the control, the calm, the power and authority of Jesus throughout it all. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. The scriptures, for it is written, time and time and time again. Can we be those people who look past our subjective thoughts and feelings to the very objective word of God and say submissively, Yes, Lord. When we don't understand. When the secret things that belong to God are not revealed to us. When God's redemptive will does not make sense to us. When God's redemptive purposes make us feel incredibly uncomfortable. Can we fall on our face and say... If there's any way that this can pass from me, let it be. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. That's the goal. And I promise you, in your rebellious flesh, you'll never do that. In your religious flesh, you will never do that. Only in the power of the Holy Spirit, because Jesus Christ came in redemptive flesh, is that even possible to and for us. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus proved that through his own life, did he not? Yeah, he did. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? what shall a man give in return for his soul? Paul says in Philippians 1, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For, church, it has been granted to you, That for the sake of Christ you shall never be uncomfortable. That for the sake of Christ nothing bad will ever happen to you. For it has been granted to you church. That for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him. But also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had. And now hear that I still have. Peter, um, Paul writes from a Roman prison chained to a Roman guard in chains because of the gospel. Last passage, first Peter. Oh, Peter, because of redemptive flesh, because of the work of Christ in redemptive flesh, Peter says this, servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Well, that ain't fair. That ain't good. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Look at the redemption of Peter. This is beautiful. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Let me stop there a second. I can just imagine Peter's mind going back to this night in Matthew. I watched him. He just stood there. And he trusted God in the midst of this. He himself, Peter now goes to the cross. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep. And Peter would say, I was straying like sheep. But now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. What a powerful picture of redemption. And Judas uh, Judas will go and hang himself. Peter will run and hide for a while and Jesus will come and bless him with grace and reinstate him. Jesus will be handed over to the mob. He will be handed over to the Romans. He will suffer and die on the cross for your sins and for mine. That we might be redeemed and that we might be called to the blessing of suffering with and for him. And that will not happen in your rebellious flesh. It will not happen in your religious flesh. It will only happen in your redeemed flesh. And he has redeemed us. Because of the great love with which he has loved us, we have been called, we have been chosen, we have been redeemed. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that your will, your way is perfect. And we talked about that last week. Help us, God, to trust that perfect will. Help us to trust your perfect plans, especially when we don't understand them. Especially when they are hard for us. Help us to not be those who just bite our lip and try harder to do better. Help us to trust you and to entrust ourselves to you. And God, if there's anybody here this morning that is in rebellion to you, By the power of your Holy Spirit, convict them, draw them, and breathe life into them. Help us, God, to walk as redeemed people. Not rebellious, not in our religious flesh, but in the gift of your redemption so that you get the glory and we get the good. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We just stand and receive a benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, amen. You're dismissed. We'll love you better outside. It's nice. Go outside and talk. Don't hang out in here and spew your germs on people.